Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we'll go over the topic of pulmonary tuberculosis and PPD. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 37-year-old man presents to his primary care physician with subjective fever, malaise, and cough. He reports a few episodes of night sweats, and he has noted an unintentional 15-pound loss over the course of two months. Yesterday, he noted bloody sputum. He recently immigrated from Central Africa and currently lives with many family members in a small apartment. Chest radiograph demonstrates a cavitary lesion in the right upper lobe of the lung. Now, let's get into the episode. As a quick introduction, the definition of pulmonary tuberculosis is an infection of the respiratory system caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis. With respect to epidemiology, risk factors for tuberculosis include close contact with someone with tuberculosis or TB, for example, prisons and homeless shelters. Other risk factors include immigrating from a highly endemic region such as Bangladesh, Cambodia, or the Central African Republic. Other risk factors include working in hospitals and nursing homes, immunosuppression, for example, having HIV, diabetes, and on immunosuppressive medications, and substance use disorder, which is the most important risk factor for diffuse reticulonodular patterns. The etiology of pulmonary tuberculosis, as we mentioned, is a mycobacterium tuberculosis infection. Transmission includes inhaling airborne particles or droplet nuclei, and know that suspected patients should be placed on respiratory isolation precautions during workup. With respect to pathophysiology, droplet nuclei that is produced by coughing gets inhaled, which then recruits macrophages when in the alveoli, which then causes dissemination of macrophage-infected cells into deeper tissues and caseating granuloma formation. Extrapulmonary TB can manifest as meningitis, Pons disease or vertebral infection, miliary TB, pericarditis, adrenal gland infection, and genitourinary TB. The presentation of pulmonary tuberculosis includes symptoms of cough, whether productive or non-productive, hemoptysis, night sweats, fever, and loss of appetite. Physical exam may reveal weight loss, and although physical exam is not helpful in diagnosing TB, it is important to assess for extrapulmonary involvement, for example, hepatosplenomegaly, lymphadenopathy, scrotal, and pelvic tenderness. As far as imaging, findings on chest radiography include nonspecific findings, for example, patchy or lobar consolidation or non-detectable lesions. Other findings can include cavitary lesions, miliary nodules, hilar adenopathy, and pleural effusion. As far as studies to obtain in the setting of pulmonary tuberculosis, a sputum specimen will reveal acid-fast bacilli. Sputum should also be cultured and undergo nucleic acid amplification tests. Blood tests should include an interferon gamma release assay. A tuberculin skin test results in a delayed immune response with the administration of purified protein derivatives from mycoplasma tuberculosis. This is measured in 48 to 72 hours. As far as findings, greater than or equal to 5 millimeters is considered a positive test in patients with HIV, recent TB exposure, chest radiographic findings that consisted of healed TB infection, and in the setting of organ transplantation or patients on immunosuppressants. Greater than or equal to 10 millimeters is considered a positive test in patients that are injection drug users, patients that are chronic diabetics, chronic renal failure, employees in high-risk settings, for example, physicians, nurses, or prison workers, and recent immigration from an endemic country. Greater than or equal to 15 millimeters is considered a positive test in patients with no known risk factors. Treatment of pulmonary tuberculosis is medical, and drug regimens include rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, otherwise known as RIPE therapy. Isoniazid only is indicated for TB prophylaxis. 
So in terms of rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, or RIPE therapy, this is indicated as the treatment of choice for the two-month initial phase. A four-month continuation phase is with rifampin and isoniazid. As far as side effects, know that isoniazid should be given with vitamin B6 or pyridoxine to prevent peripheral neuropathy. B6 deficiency can cause refractory seizures, and this should be treated with pyridoxine. Also know that rifampin, isoniazid, and pyrazinamide can cause liver toxicity. Ethambutol results in optic neuropathy. Finally, complications of pulmonary tuberculosis include tuberculoma, aspergilloma, and acute respiratory failure. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 27-year-old man presents to his primary care physician for his first appointment. He recently was released from prison. The patient wants a checkup before he goes out and finds a job. He states that lately he has felt very fatigued and has had a cough. He has lost roughly 15 pounds over the past three weeks. He attributes this to intravenous drug use in prison. His temperature is 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.5 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 127 over 68 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 100 per minute. Respirations are 18 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. The patient is started on appropriate treatment. Which of the following is the most likely indication to discontinue this patient's treatment? And the choices are 1. Elevated liver enzymes. 2. Hyperuricemia. 3. Optic neuritis. 4. Peripheral neuropathy. And 5. Red body excretions. The correct answer to this question is 1. Elevated liver enzymes. So this patient is presenting with symptoms suggestive of tuberculosis and has been started on treatment. The most likely indication to discontinue tuberculosis therapy is elevation of liver enzymes. Tuberculosis typically presents with weight loss, cough, and night sweats usually in high-risk patients, like prisoners or the immunosuppressed. Treatment for tuberculosis is RIPE therapy, rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. The most common indication to alter or discontinue therapy is an elevation of liver enzymes five times greater than baseline. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, hyperuricemia is a side effect of pyrazinamide. However, this is not the most common indication for discontinuing RIPE therapy. Answer 3, optic neuritis is a side effect of ethambutol. However, it is not the most common indication for discontinuing RIPE therapy. Answer 4, peripheral neuropathy is a side effect of isoniazid. However, this too is not typically an indication to discontinue RIPE therapy. And finally, answer 5, red body excretions are a side effect of rifampin. However, this is a cosmetic concern rather than an indication to discontinue RIPE therapy. To leave you with a bullet summary, elevation of liver enzymes five times above normal is the most common indication to alter or discontinue RIPE therapy when treating tuberculosis. Moving on to the next question. A 25-year-old medical student returns from a volunteer mission trip in Nicaragua with persistent cough and occasional hemoptysis for three weeks. A purified protein derivative test revealing a 20-millimeter wheel and a chest radiograph with hilar lymphadenopathy support a diagnosis of active tuberculosis. The patient has started on appropriate therapy. Among the prescribed medications, one drug inhibits carbohydrate polymerization of the pathogen cell wall. What is the most likely complaint that the patient may present with because of this drug? And the choices are 1. Joint pain, 2. Leg numbness, 3. Nausea and vomiting, 4. Orange-colored urine, and 5. Vision changes.
the correct answer to this question is five, vision changes. So this vignette presents a patient with active tuberculosis on rifampin, isoniazid slash pyridoxine, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, otherwise known as RIPE therapy. Ethambutol is the drug that is described in this question, which can cause vision changes due to optic neuritis. To quickly review, active tuberculosis requires aggressive management with multiple synergistic medications to clear the body of the disease pathogen, which is mycoplasma tuberculosis. Medical management involves hospital respiratory isolation and multi-drug therapy for at least six months using RIPE therapy. Ethambutol inhibits the enzyme arabinosyl transferase, which leads to increased permeability of the cell wall. Among its side effects, optic neuritis is unfortunately common, which can present with transient blindness, hazy vision, and pain on movement of the affected eye. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, pyrazinamide is the prodrug for pyrazinoic acid, which binds to intracellular ribosomes to decrease protein translation and kill M. tuberculosis, whether dormant or active. Joint pain is the most common side effect. Answer two, isoniazid is the prodrug for isonicotinic acid, which prevents synthesis of mycolic acid and maintenance of the mycobacterial cell wall. Peripheral neuropathy is the most common side effect. Answer three, pyridoxine or vitamin B6 is often prescribed with isoniazid to the latter drug's effect in increasing pyridoxine excretion. Its repletion decreases risk of peripheral neuropathy and sideroblastic anemia. It is also used to treat nausea and vomiting, particularly in pregnant patients. Answer four, rifampin inhibits DNA-dependent RNA polymerase, causing decreased production of bacterial proteins. It has been used synergistically with isoniazid to treat latent tuberculosis. Orange-colored urine is a common but benign side effect. To leave you with a bullet summary, optic neuritis is a common side effect of ethambutol. And moving on to the final question, a 56-year-old man presents to the emergency department with difficulty breathing along with subjective fever, chills, and a non-productive cough. The patient states that his symptoms began four days ago and have been progressively worsening. He recently returned from a month-long trip to South Africa. He is a long-time smoker with a 30-pack year history and denies any other drug use. The patient takes atorvastatin for hyperlipidemia and hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension. His temperature is 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.5 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 135 over 85 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 84 per minute. Respirations are 20 per minute. And pulse oxygen saturation is 94%. Physical exam shows dullness to percussion at the right posterior base. A chest radiograph reveals blunting of the right costophrenic angle. Pleural fluid analysis from his thoracentesis is as follows. Serum protein is 5.4 grams per deciliter. Lactate dehydrogenase is 215 units per liter. Pleural protein is 3.1 grams per deciliter. Lactate dehydrogenase is 90 units per liter. Lymphocytes are 86%, and neutrophils are 10%. Which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's symptoms? And the choices are 1, heart failure, 2, lung cancer, 3, mycobacterium infection, 4, pulmonary embolism, and 5, viral pneumonia. The correct answer to this question is three, mycobacterium infection. So this patient has an exudative pleural effusion by the light criteria, which is a ratio of pleural fluid protein to serum protein, that is a ratio of pleural fluid protein to serum protein is 0.57 with associated fever and travel history to South Africa concerning for mycobacterium tuberculosis infection. To quickly review, tuberculosis pleural effusions can be associated with primary or reactivated disease. The diagnosis should be suspected in patients with an acute febrile illness, non-productive cough, 
or pleuritic chest pain, along with epidemiological risk factors for tuberculosis infection. Risk factors include close contact with infected individuals, residents in or previous visits to endemic regions, work in hospitals or nursing homes, and immunosuppression. Typically, a tuberculous effusion is right-sided. Pleural fluid analysis will show an exudative effusion with lymphocytic predominance and elevated adenosine deaminase or ADA levels. Like criteria can classify fluid as an exudate if one or more of the following are present. 1. Ratio of pleural fluid protein to serum protein is greater than 0.5. 2. Ratio of pleural fluid lactate dehydrogenase or LDH to serum LDH is greater than 0.6. And 3. Pleural fluid LDH level is greater than two-thirds the upper limit of normal for serum LDH. In contrast, a transidate will not meet like criteria and is caused by imbalances in hydrostatic and oncotic pressures such as heart failure, cirrhosis, and nephrosis. A pleural biopsy of a TB infection may also reveal caseating granulomas. In most cases, with appropriate RIPE, that is rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol therapy, the pleural fluid will resorb. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, left-sided heart failure causes increased pulmonary capillary pressures and can present as bilateral transidative pleural effusions. Answer 2, lung cancers and other malignancies such as breast cancers and lymphomas can produce an exudative effusion. Cytology will demonstrate presence of cancerous cells. Answer 4, pulmonary embolism can present as an exudative pleural effusion with ischemic damage causing pleural-slash-lung inflammation and increased capillary permeability. Risk factors include prolonged immobilization, thrombophilia, and contraceptive use. Patients may have tachypnea, tachycardia, and possibly hemodynamic instability on physical exam. And finally, answer 5, viral pneumonia can cause an exudative effusion with lymphocytic predominance. Serologic testing or a positive culture confirms the diagnosis. Common pathogens include adenovirus and Epstein-Barr virus. To leave you with a bullet summary, tuberculous pleural effusions classically present as right-sided exudative effusions with lymphocytic predominance and elevated pleural fluid protein, lactate dehydrogenase, and adenosine deaminase levels. That's all for this review about pulmonary tuberculosis and PPD. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast.